These increases in CO2 basically act as a fertilizer for plants, right? right. Hey, more air sugar for us to, uh, <laughs> to, to to produce, right? And so maybe people are thinking, hey, you know, as the CO2 levels increase, plants are going to be doing better. We're going to have a greener environment. Uh, CO2 isn't going to go only to the plants that we want to grow. Right. It includes things like poison ivy that actually thrive on growing very quickly, as opposed to things like trees that maybe take much longer to grow. Hi, my name is Irfan Vafai with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. And I'm Vikram Baliga with Texas Tech University. And this is Jolly Green Scientists, a podcast where we digest research articles and findings from trade magazines pertaining to the green industry and regurgitate them for you. And this week, we have two different pop science articles to discuss with you today. One is on how poison ivy, not the villain, but the plant, is actually going to take over a planet. It, it could be the villain. It could be both. Yeah, it could. Absolutely. She could be secretly plotting all of this. And the second one is uh, this article that's been ro- going around about a beetle that can survive being eaten by a frog and actually swims through the gut and goes out of uh, the technical term is the vent hole of the frog and survives. And so let's start off. So uh, Vikram, you, p- you picked the poison ivy one. I did. So what is this uh, pop- popular science article about? Let's get, start us off. So I saw this for, and it's, it's kind of been in a few places, but I saw this first in Southern Living Magazine, which I know is a hard-hitting science Incredible, yes. Periodical, right? Absolutely. Uh, And the headline, (laughs) the headline, so someone had shared it on Facebook or something. The headline caught my attention because it says, poison ivy becoming bigger, more poisonous, because of course it is. (laughs) And Uh, the subtitle there, 2020 just won't quit. By Megan Overdeep. (laughs) It's really, it's a fun, it's a short, funny article. uh, Pretty much just talking about how CO2 concentrations in the atmosphere because of climate change are increasing. And turns out that plants like that, especially forest plants. Yeah. So I found this very interesting. Let's, I mean, let's first uh, start off going back. What is what climate change? What, what is that? It's this new thing that nobody's talking about. <laughs> and pretty much we've really screwed the pooch. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, and, and the temperatures are increasing. Um, and it's not just, the, it, you know, global warming used to be the, the hot button thing, right? Oh, global mm-hmm. warming. And, you know, Al Gore made that documentary and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but really, climate change is more accurate because we're seeing variability across the the board and and more extreme weather events. But the, but a big part of this is that CO two levels are going up in the atmosphere. Um, yeah. They've you know they were sitting at about four hundred and fifty parts per million um, ambient in the atmosphere, I believe, right now, which is a, quite an increase over fifty years ago. Yeah, so in the 1950s, it was about 300 parts per million. And so it's increased by over 30% in just 70 years, which is, um, they say, quite concerning. And it's, I can't remember the exact number, but over 550 parts per million or so that it's predicted that it'll be very difficult to bring that down. And we'll start seeing some, uh, quite some extreme weather, weather patterns. And I think that was really... Um, you know, a good point that you made there that, you know, I think it was commonly referred to as global warming, but then we had uh, politicians bringing snowballs, you know, into to oh public arenas and saying, you know, global warming, then why do I have this snowball in my hand in this particular month? And in really Nebraska it, in, in January. <laughs> <laughs> 
and, and really, this uh, the the idea behind global warming is that on average, if you looked at the entire globe, there's a slow, gradual increase in temperature. But really, climate change can be thought of more accurately because uh, you know you get more extreme weather events in different areas. You know, we have these uh, massive. Uh, freezers on the North and South Pole. And as things warm up, you know, those cool, um, that those cool air currents all of a sudden move in different directions. And so all of a sudden it might not feel like it's getting warmer in some areas. It might feel like it's getting a bit cooler, but that's because a bunch of ice just melted. That's been frozen for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And so what's kind of like kind of scary about all this, especially is that uh, the CO2 uh, levels have been increasing not just like very gradually or slowly, but exponentially. So, you know, even though it's taken us 70 years to get from 300 to 400 parts per million, it won't take us that long to get to 550 at no. all. <laughs> you know, it's hard. It's hardly linear. And, and, yeah. and I think that's what people need to understand about this. If you look at growth curves of anything, really of anything, uh, and, and you can look at population increases, you can look at things like that. Uh, but but a lot of these problems are self-propagating, right? So the hotter it yep. gets, the hotter it gets, and the faster we get there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and you know, as these plants are using and uh, putting out more, um, I guess, you know, they're putting out oxygen, but during photorespiration, they're also putting out CO2. Yeah. As more people are on the planet and we're all using carbon and we're all doing all of these things that, you know, uh, has if if you have not heard about it at this point, you know, you're not paying attention. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it doesn't it help that uh, 2020 has been a, a pretty big year for a lot of forests mm-hmm. burning down, yep. which can help fix a lot of carbon. But now at this point, like, so, I mean, we know that, that carbon, the, the reason why it's important in climate change is because it creates this greenhouse effect, right? So it traps more of the, uh, the sun's solar radiation on the earth. So it kind of warms things up a little bit more. But in the case of this poison ivy, it's not so much about the increasing temperature that's important as much as just the increasing amount of carbon in the air. So why mm-hmm. is that important for plants? How is that relevant? Well, so carbon dioxide or, or specifically the carbon in carbon dioxide is one of the main uh, reagents in photosynthesis. So plants pull in carbon dioxide. They go through this whole photosynthetic process where they turn light into sugar and then they turn that sugar into things like leaves and stems and roots and more plants. So uh, we're actually seeing that a lot of plants in a carbon-rich environment are pretty happy, right? Like they're uh, not all plants. You know, there are some issues there, especially if, as, as local temperatures change. But plants are able to accumulate more biomass because they are a major carbon sink on the planet. Right. Um, but the, so the planet, the planet wants to maintain homeostasis, right? Is a close. System. I mean, it wants a lot of things. It wants a lot of things. It's not getting, it's yeah. not getting those things. <laughs> well, it, but, but so, so plants growing faster does sequester more carbon. Mm-hmm. Right. And so as part of this closed system, that is the planet, uh, the more carbon in the atmosphere, the more carbon plants are going to sequester. The problem with that is like, we have probably overwhelmed this sink, you know, as we're talking about climate change and all that. Yeah. But plants grow bigger, plants grow faster. And in general, that sounds like it's not a terrible thing, right? Like, Oh, big plants. Cool. (laughs) Uh, Enter poison Ivy. Oh, yes. Yeah. So this is, I mean, it's kind of, so just before you jump into poison Ivy, you know, there's even been articles written 
about, you know, there's this one called Greening of the Earth and its Drivers by Zaychun Zhu and Ed Al uh, in 2016, where they're talking about, you know, hey, these increases in CO2 basically act as a fertilizer for plants, right? right. Hey, more more sugar, more air sugar for us to uh, to, <laughs> to, to produce, right? And, uh, and so maybe people are thinking, hey, you know, as the CO2 levels increase, hey, plants are going to be doing better. We're going to have a greener environment. Um, and then they can sequester some more of that carbon as they get bigger. But it turns out it's not uh, as simple as a relationship like that, right? Uh, CO2 isn't going to go only to the plants that we want to grow or that are beneficial uh, to humans. Right. It includes things like poison ivy that actually thrive on growing very quickly as opposed to things like trees that maybe it take much longer to grow. Right. Right. Well, and, and yeah. And so when we talk about forest compositions and we talk about maintaining the balance of the balance of these ecosystems, yeah, there's really aggressive plants like poison ivy that are not just harmful to, um, you know, potential predators like insects and animals and, uh, people that happen to walk by and brush up against them, but they, they're potentially harmful to the ecosystem overall. Cause as they grow faster and faster, they're able to outcompete some of these other plants that typically use carbon a little bit more slowly. And so yeah. uh, there, there's potential for big shifts and big negative effects in just ecosystem composition overall. Yeah. And so what was also very interesting, so they're actually referencing uh, in this popular science article, a research article, all right, and this is published in PNAS mm -hmm. uh, called Biomass and Toxicity Responses of Poison Ivy to Elevated Atmospheric CO2 by Mohan et al. in 2006. So this is actually done, done a while back. Mm -hmm. But this, um, they did this study over six years, all right, where they're looking at essentially what is the biomass of poison ivy within this particular forest over time? Uh, what is the, the, the concentration of the actual oil that uh, gives gives it that toxicity. And they actually found that this increased CO2, so not only did it increase the biomass, the, the growth of poison ivy, but it actually created a more toxic compound. It created a more toxic, what's it called? Uh, Urushiol. Yeah. Urushiol. Urushiol. Isn't that, that's like an Eastern Bloc country, right? I Ur think so. Urushio. Yeah, I think we've invaded there before. <laughs> <laughs> if not, they may need some freedom. You can't yeah. use any of this, yeah. can you? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, however you pronounce that, that compound that yeah. makes you itchy, there's more of it and it's more potent. Yeah. And, 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 and so what's really interesting, so this is what I found kind of mind-blowing. Was so you know this urushiol is is a plant defense compound, right? And so as CO two levels increase, uh, theoretically you can have chemical plant defense compounds increase in all kinds of different types of plants, and these compounds are very important for uh, protecting against different herbivores, different insects, especially. So there is one uh, thought or, or one kind of proposition that perhaps some of the decreases we're seeing in insect populations over the last several years is due to increases in plant defense compounds. Hmm. And this is a letter uh, written to the editor of environmental entomology written by Ocott or Ocott. I should really try practicing some of these words before maybe, we do. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Next time. Like, There's always the next time. New, yeah. Always next time from the college of new, New Jersey. And, um, 
And, and so, yeah, he, he kind of proposes this idea that maybe as this carbon increases, okay, um, that it can actually be decreasing insect populations in one of two ways. One, uh, by making that carbon more accessible, uh, those plants have a higher source of carbon versus nitrogen. And really it's that nitrogen that is, uh, you know, that the insects really want. It's that protein that they want in order to reproduce. So if the plants have a lower nitrogen concentration, then it's less nutritious for the insects. And then the second mechanism that he proposes is that this increase in carbon dioxide might be increasing carbon-based uh, chemical defense compounds. There are some nitrogen-based chemical defense compounds as well, but the carbon-based compounds such as urushiol uh, may be increasing in plants and thus making them better protected against some of they might be either pest insects or they might be some of our, you know, butterfly larvae that we mm -hmm. uh, used to see and run in the, uh, in, the, in the beautiful meadows with. Frolicking. Frolicking. Frolicking, Absolutely. I think, is the, the, the scientific <laughs> technical term. But no, but I think this is a very important point. And it's, you know, it's kind of a funny little article just talking, or at least the, the first one just talking about, oh, no, there's more poison <laughs> ivy. But It's hilarious. We all love poison ivy getting bigger and stronger. Yeah, you know, 149% <laughs> increase in, uh, or it's growing 149% faster than in previous decades. Yeah. But it does point out some of the cascade effects that are really concerning when we talk about climate change and talk about some of this. Because like you're saying, Again, it's not just that the poison ivy's worse, it's that it's causing all of these other uh, ecological impacts. Well, so that's your poison ivy. So when you're out and about social distancing, going on a nice hike, beware poison ivy is bigger, more abundant, and more painful. More painful. And what do they say? Leaves of three, let it be. That's right. right? That leaves, right? Of, right. leaves of six. Uh pick up um, sticks pick up no, sticks that doesn't make any sense <laughs> i don't know i don't know but but just it is it is interesting to think about that you know as as someone who enjoys a good hike every now and then uh mm -hmm. this stuff is becoming more of a problem and whereas it could have been just a uh more of a nuisance in the past and you get kind of itchy as these compounds become more toxic and i think this this was something i'd written down to say uh, there are plants that cause chemical burns and serious health issues. Yeah. And and as the climate changes, some of these things that are really just like a nuisance plant in the past could actually be a serious, uh, uh, serious medical and health hazard going forward. Yeah. And it could in, in some ways as well, like climate change, um, you know, has explained how some plants that were native and, and uh, played in balance in an ecosystem before all of a sudden became noxious invasive plants that were taking over certain habitats. Same goes with insects as well. So it's kind of very interesting to think about, you know, it's just more, it's, it's a lot more than just a slight increase in temperature year after year. There's like some huge implications. And yep. after, you know, just after some of these implications, it's really hard to predict what really happens after that. So speaking of insects, let's talk about frog butts. Oh, yes. Let's get there. So there's this uh, article that was circulating around. This is in Science News. Water beetles can live on after being eaten and excreted by a frog because it's 2020. Okay, what a that life. was not the subtitle. But what a life. <laughs> yeah. If you feel so before we uh, go forward, if you feel at all like you're having a crappy day, just know there are beetles out there that literally have crappy days. <laughs> literally 
and we're about to learn about what happens here. So there are a number of predators that consume prey. <laughs> That's what I, I would say. So there's a couple statement of the year, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen, there are predators that eat prey. <clears throat> there are some prey that when they are consumed by predators can actually survive that encounter. So some examples include uh, there are some types of clam that can be eaten and, and passed through. There are some mm -hmm. snails that will basically seal their shell when they're eaten by fish or birds mm -hmm. and wait until they pass through and survive. Dudes there named Jonah. Dudes named Jonah. Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to see how that landed. I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't there another one called Moby as well? Was that Moby? One yes. Too? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. He's a fantastic artist. Anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway. Sorry. And so uh, then there's this. Uh, there are some beetles, for example. All right. There's this one beetle called the Bombardier beetle that when it is consumed by, say, frogs, it ejects a hot chemical compound out of its rear. Mm -hmm. Um that is basically induces regurgitation in the frog. So the frog throws up the beetle. So that helps. Um, I can't remember what the percentage is. Some, let's say around 50% of the Bombardier beetles or, or less. I can't remember. I remember it being a little bit less than that can survive actually being eaten by a frog and thrown back out. Now, this type of beetle, all right, can actually uh, be eaten and will swim through the digestive tract, right? So instead of being like, yeah, I want to go out the same way I came in, it's it swims all the way downstream. All the way through. All the way through. And, you know, the digestive tract of a frog, now depending on the frog, right, is about 12 inches long. These beetles are pretty small. Yeah. So they're, they're doing a reasonable amount of swimming. Can, can you guess about how long it takes for them to swim through? Mm, a day. So it takes a little less than a day. It takes about six hours. Okay. So for six hours, they are trying to, <laughs> to navigate the digestive tract of a frog. Now, some of them are very ambitious, hard workers. They get out in about six minutes. That's impressive. Yeah. Very impressive. And they did find it. So what's unique about the situation, right? Cause we mentioned some others, some other prey that could survive being eaten. What's unique about this situation is that they are actively moving out using their legs. They're actually swimming. So they actually, when they kind of gummed up their legs using wax, they did not make it. Uh, they would come out the rear dead uh, at least a day later. Whereas uh, the other ones, about 90% of them could survive. Like that's a pretty high survival rate. Yeah. 90% could survive by going through this like acidic oxygen poor digestive system of the frog by 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 swimming all the way through well and they're they're specific it, it's interesting because they're in some ways specifically adapted to do exactly this right a chitinous carapace <laughs> that can yeah uh which evolution's wild right but um uh yeah but they 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 have physiological things that would allow them to do this like this carapace that will stand up to digestive um uh, enzymes longer than maybe some other organisms and uh, the ability to breathe underwater. Exactly. And so if you're thinking about making it through crap in life, you've got to, you know, you've got to learn, learn what it takes. You know, you got to be able to hold your breath. You've got to be able to continue swimming downstream and make it through rather than going back from where you came from. As, as the great philosopher Dory said, <laughs> just keep swimming. <laughs>
Just keep swimming. That's exactly it. That's exactly <laughs> it. Now, I did want to bring up one other very interesting thing that came up. Uh, so I'm a part of this Facebook group called Entomology. I know that's creative. Like, just very creative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of people on there and they post <laughs> like identification photos, all like ID requests all the time. And that's where I just kind of get to see some things that I don't usually see. There was this one that was very interesting that looked like a bunch of little larvae or worms. Now, this is kind of more relevant to the green industry oh, yeah. that are climbing on top of each other and um, at almost as like a single mass. Now, there is this uh, article that's written back in 1951 by Charles T. Bruce called A Migrating Army of Scarid Larvae in the Philippines. So Scarid are a, a group of fungus gnats. Uh, so fungus gnats are a major problem, especially if you're overwatering. They get yeah. those larvae um, causing problems and roots and whatnot. And so here, there's this little excerpt where he kind of, I think, very succinctly and descriptively describes what the mass is doing. He says, in the present instance, the mass of larvae was moving slowly in a very irregular band about a foot in length, less than an inch in width and layered to a depth of about half an inch. As has been described in some previously observed cases, the individual larvae were moving on the slimy bodies of their fellows so that progression is accomplished by the forward motion of those on the top, while those at the rear, as they are uncovered, move with a sort of superficial belt-like rolling motion over the cramped individuals in the lower layers. Thus, the mass moves onward, but the larvae are continually changing position with reference to one another. And I mean, you'd have to see this video to really grasp. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm watching it right now <laughs> as you say that. <laughs> and I don't know how you could describe that better. Yeah, it's very well it's weird done. and gross. It's it's this like pool of larvae that move together almost as a single unit, almost like a swarm of bees or like a flock of fish. Like a flock of, yes, a flock of seagulls, <laughs> in, fa in fact. Yes. No, you know what? If you've ever seen a slug move. Yeah, it looks like a slug made up of a whole bunch of other slugs. Yeah, but the, and then but they're all like he says they're all changing their relative positions. So it's yeah, not like weird. they're all like maintaining the same position and moving right. in synchrony. They're all just like it's this mass that yeah looks like a a slug, but it's all these individual larvae climbing on top of each other. <laughs> I probably won't have nightmares about this. What's funny is is if you watch this like towards the end of the, this has nothing to do with anything towards the end of this video and this actually may uh, this may be relevant there's an ant or some other insect that crawls into frame in the bottom right side of the frame yeah and he sees this big mass and he's like <laughs> nope no nope. he just nopes out but <laughs> you know but but that actually brings up an interesting point that this this could be an mm -hmm. interesting adaptation for a defensive measure yeah so it is considered one type of potential defense mechanism so as a larger mass they look a little bit scarier. Uh, perhaps an ant would not think to try and, you know, feed on it. Whereas if they are individuals, a fire ant might be like, hey, this one little larva looks delicious. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, th it's thought to be a potential defense uh, mechanism. So as a grower, if you see this mass moving around, it, it's usually a sign of you, you, you just had a high population. They are older larvae that are likely about to pupate. So they are moving to some other favorable habitat to do so. Uh, you don't need to mix up any insecticides. All you need to do at that point is step on that mass. Just and squish it. That would, that would just about do it.
Yeah. I mean, I would think so. It would be gross. <laughs> I would think so as well. I would it sure would, hope so. <laughs> just make sure you're wearing shoes first. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just I can't stop watching this. We'll have to share this on social media. Yeah, that because it's good. it's uh, uh, it's something to behold. It is absolutely. Well, hey, I thought that was. Uh, thanks a lot for sharing that poison ivy article. I thought that yeah. was great. Yeah, this was uh, a. These were some interesting things to discuss. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I want to thank everyone for tuning in. To this episode of Jolly Green Scientists. Please do remember to uh, subscribe to our Facebook group, Jolly Green Scientists. We always love to hear feedback. We love hearing from our fans. Subscribe, tell your friends about it. Also, if you have suggestions for things you might like us to cover, if you've seen yes. an article in horticulture or in entomology that you're like, man, it'd be great if we could discuss this, shoot those our way. We love to see them and we love to get your feedback on, on what to talk about. Yeah. Or if it's just a, like a specific research topic or a certain specific question, like a, a scientific type of question or a horticulture related question that you have, uh, Vikram and I can do the research and, and, and discuss it for an episode. So absolutely fired in that Facebook group and that would be great. So I want to thank y'all again for joining in. My name is Erfan Vafai with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. And I'm Vikram Baliga with Texas Tech University. Y'all have a nice fortnight. 